Welcome to Educational Alpha. I'm Bill Kelly, CEO of Kai Association and your host, bringing you on the ground conversations with business leaders, educators, and industry colleagues from around the globe. Educational Alpha is sponsored by iCapital, the financial technology company with the mission to power the world's alternative investment marketplace. Part innovator, part educator, and part navigator of the alternatives industry, iCapital offers intuitive, scalable digital solutions that have transformed how private market and hedge fund investments are bought and sold. With iCapital, financial advisors, wealth managers, and asset managers around the world now have access to everything they need to deliver the return and diversification potential of alternatives to high net worth investors. To learn more, visit iCapital.com. In this episode, we dive into a fascinating conversation with Jack Ingalls, a prominent figure in the financial industry. He shares insights on a wide range of topics, from the challenges of international regulation alignment to the evolving landscape of alternative investments. Discover why due diligence and transparent value add are crucial when considering hedge fund investments and learn about the importance of diversification and risk-adjusted returns. Jack also comments on global cooperation in addressing environmental, social, and governance, ESG, issues, and the impact of regulation on the asset management industry. Get ready for an engaging and informative discussion as we unravel the complexities and opportunities in the world of finance. Listen in. Jack Engels, welcome to Educational Alpha. Thank you for having me on here, Bill. My pleasure. There's a lot to cover. I think this is going to be aired close to the end of Q4 of 2023, which is the beginning of a new end, beginning of a new beginning, however you want to couch it. But this Kaya board seat has been part of Kaya's inner governance structure for the 21 years we've been in association. And you've served as a very uh, active and participating board member, a member of our audit committee for the last decade. And we're going to talk more about that. But, but as we think about Kaya over the next 10 years, we had two founding partners, AMA and CISDM at UMass Amherst. I think the CISDM seat with Tom Schneeweiss went away a couple of years ago. And with governance and transfer of responsibilities and governance term limits, the AMA seat uh, through you will be winding down at the end of this year, but it doesn't mean the end of our relationship. So part of this podcast is to thank you for all you've done, the things we've done together, and uh, with the thought that there's a lot more for us to accomplish. But before we get into any of that, I think it'd be good for the audience to hear a little bit about your background. I think a lot of folks do know you. You seem to make these who's who's lists of people. I don't know how the hell I'm going to get on one of those, but eventually I'll, I'll try to. But you've had a very good career, and I think maybe highlighting some of that, bringing you up to the AIMA days would be a great way to start. Yeah, thank you, Bill. And and yeah, let's talk about the um, great work that AIMA and Kai have done together, because I think it's something for both you and I and, and both organizations to be very proud of. But talking about myself, Gosh, how did I get to where I am today? It seems a bit lost in the mists of time that I began my career. I graduated, I hesitate to say this, but back in 1983 from Cambridge University. And really back then, certainly nobody was thinking or talking about alternatives. So I joined financial services industry into a stockbroking firm that was acquired by HSBC and came up a sort of pretty conventional route. But my 
first sort of exposure to, I guess, the alternatives industry and the hedge fund industry in particular came about the sort of back end of the 1980s. And I got to know some trading counterparties that were pretty small, pretty nascent um, back in those days and started doing business with them. Some of those have grown into the most well-known names in the hedge fund industry and still going very strong today. So I remember them back in very small beginnings. So I was working at Morgan Stanley at the time and, and really began covering hedge funds in, in a multitude of different ways, servicing them and trading with them. That led me through a long career at Morgan Stanley, and I ended up running the European prime brokerage business, which is clearly a hedge fund servicing business. And the lure of hedge funds became just too much for me at one point. And I decided to accept an offer to go and join a hedge fund company in London. Now, my timing wasn't terribly good, and it's not always very good about other things either. But I joined in 2007, and we all know what happened a short year later. And when you're doing highly levered convertible bond arbitrage, you find yourself right in the eye of the storm in 2008, of which I did. And uh, so a huge learning experience near-death experience, but um, one where we, Felix was resurrected out of the ashes and the business continued. So that was my sort of experience actually working at a hedge fund as their chief executive officer. And I then went back to banking for a little bit after that, again, servicing hedge funds. So I could say that I've been in the industry now, certainly the alternatives industry and hedge funds specifically, for well over 30 years, which seems an incredibly long time. And as most of my friends uh, ask me, how, how much longer are you actually going to do this for, Jack? And you know, I would say I'm really still very energized by the industry that we represent. I enjoy my job hugely. I enjoy the people I come into contact with them through my job, and that includes people like yourself, Bill. And we're never too old to keep learning, and there's an awful lot to continue learning in this business. And um, while I may not be a Kaya certificate holder. I wish I could find the time. Uh, I wish I could find the energy to do that. But I think what Kaya produce through your curriculum is just absolutely much needed in our industry. Well, I appreciate all that. And I appreciate this of the founding foresight of people that came before you and I, but Ama was and always will be uh, one of those two founders. So I think that's great. Uh, maybe certainly predates you, but you might have semi-informed views on this, but it's interesting. And you described it as much that back when you and I first heard about alternatives, it wasn't so much alternatives, it was hedge funds and structured products and other tradable strategies. And it doesn't mean PE and VC didn't exist, but they were very much not in the forefront of investing from an institutional standpoint. But it's interesting, I've seen a lot of organizations that were hedge fund blank, and they've now changed their name to alternative investments. But 30 years ago, somebody had the foresight to call you folks AMA, as opposed to, uh, maybe it wouldn't roll off the tongue, but HFMA. So I think that's kind of interesting that 30 years ago, somebody said, well, let's make this as broad, as inclusive as possible. Is somebody have the foresight that alternatives are going to be described beyond just the tradable strategies back then? I'd like to think so, Bill, but I think probably the reason is a little bit more banal than that. I think the term hedge fund has connotations to so many people that are not always positive. Um, and we could get into length about whether that's fair or not. You know, just to give you an example. I remember back early when in the early 1990s, and my client base when I was at Morgan Stanley were hedge funds. And I was kind of made to feel a bit of an inferior specimen within Morgan Stanley because that wasn't what they called a real money client. I love that expression, real money. There was this sort of like 
a hierarchy in terms of type of client. It's completely tipped on its head now, but that was the case back then. Obviously, the world's changed very much. We've often discussed at our board level the theme of growing into our name because it hadn't slipped my attention either that we were called the Alternative Investment Management Association. And about seven or eight years ago, we got involved outside of hedge funds. I think of alternatives as as hedge funds as alternatives in the public markets. Uh, And we started getting involved in the private markets with the establishment of our private credit side of what AMA does, which we call the Alternative Credit Council. So I think I can look people in the eye fairly well now and say that we are covering way more than just hedge funds and that we actually are broader than people have originally thought. And it is all alternatives. And and certainly if you look at the work we're doing, not just through the Alternative Credit Council, but particularly the forums that we hold all around the world. Now, I know Kaya hold a huge number of events, as does AIMA. I think we both independently run over 200 events a year. If you show up at one of those, you will find increasingly that the whole sort of discussion extends right across the alternatives piece. So we talk about hedge funds, we talk about private credit, we talk about private equity. And I think that's necessary. That's important when you think what choices investors have these days. And I think your mandate and ours and together, while the focus site is on alternative investments, it really is around diversification. I think we run into a bit of an issue, a challenge, and we've seen this discussion on the 60-40 after last year, dead or alive. And certainly if you were an investor and that was your asset allocation mix and looking through a one-year lens, you were hugely disappointed at the end of 2022. But but a lot happened during that year, not the least of which is central banks raising rates by 350, 400 basis points in a handful of months. And that can cause havoc for investors and banks. And we saw that all play out. But we come out the other side. And if we talk about this third bucket called alternatives, I think we lose the narrative around everything's an alternative to something else and the benefits of broad diversification and the access to uncorrelated risk premia, first talking about the beta before you talk about the alpha, that is very much alive and well. But uh, Jane Buchan, a common friend of ours, she often talks about diversification is the only free lunch. But it's not that it's not still free, but it's not right there in front of you. And I think maybe that's at the heart of your mission and mine, and that you've got to do a lot of due diligence on your managers. And the managers have to be very transparent about where they're adding value. And uh, you've seen a lot of this yourself in terms of performance dispersion amongst managers that to think about hedge funds as just an allocation decision it's so much more complicated than that. You've got to figure out what you're trying to hedge against and finding the right manager and doing the right work on due diligence. So maybe you talk about how the fact that I think hedge funds, and to quote Howard Marks, and this predates Ama and Kaya, he said he first heard that term 30, 40 years ago when the seven smart people running seven funds, and we know how that finishes. A lot more funds of people out there today. So these have become, I would assume, very complex industries. Maybe your thoughts about the evolution of this space, because a lot has changed over your 10 years at AIMA, my 10 years at Kaya, and then more broadly speaking, our longer careers. I think that's right. And you, you used the term dispersion there, Bill. There is a huge dispersion in performances between individual hedge funds. I mean, One of the questions I get asked most often by friends who are outside the industry and they just want to check in and they say, so how are hedge funds doing this year? And and I find that question about as easy as the one, what does fish taste like? There is just, so there are so many flavors and textures of fish and there are so many flavors and textures in the hedge fund industry. And we've seen that in, in 
the um, dispersion of returns. It's dependent on strategy. It's dependent on manager. And I think we're currently, in certainly the past two years, we're seeing the highest level of dispersion between the upper quartile and lower quartile performances that are being produced by hedge funds at the moment. So that due diligence of manager selection, strategy definition, absolutely key as to whether hedge funds are going to fit into your portfolio or not. You know, the word diversify is so important. Yes, the, the question of 60-40, is it dead, has been raised, particularly in the past 18 months. I first off like to say it's not a question you follow a path of traditional investing through a 60-40 style or you're all in in alternatives. They are complementary. So one is not necessarily a substitute for the other. It might be a substitute for a certain part of your portfolio. But really, it's all about looking at the total portfolio and how you can get the best risk-adjusted returns for every dollar that's invested. And I think this is where alternatives, with the flexibility of investment style they've got, particularly in hedge funds versus traditional long-only investments in the bond and equity markets, can add so much to a portfolio, improving risk-adjusted returns. And that's a kind of a message that we're always trying to get across to people. And the one thing that people outside of our industry, Bill, always think that by investing alternatives, they're assuming a lot more risk in their portfolio. And it takes me back to a conversation I had. I won't name him, but he was a very senior person at an American bank that I worked at. And he made a comment to me one day that he said, I don't think we should be doing business with hedge funds. And I said, well, that's quite a statement given the firm earns hundreds of millions of dollars a year of dealing with hedge funds. But why is that? I asked him. And he said, because they're frightfully risky. So I just gave him the simple explanation. Or I asked him the question, you've got a pension fund, got government bonds in that pension fund. A measure of risk is perhaps volatility. And the volatility of those government bond returns is about 4%. And he went, yes. And then I said, you've also got equities in your portfolio. And and they're obviously riskier, and the volatility of the returns there is nearer 15%. So then I asked him, I said, what do you think if you put hedge funds in your portfolio, the volatility of those returns might be? And he was a very senior position in the firm, and he said, oh, I don't know, much, much higher, 50%, let's say. He was quite staggered when I told him it was 6%. He really couldn't believe me, and I had to explain why. Anyway, the thing in the tale is that he did end up being chairman of a hedge fund company, which I thought was quite amusing after all that. Well, and it's funny you said hedge funds are slightly risky. Investing is very risky. It's all about taking that risk and trying to turn it a little bit more into an informed asset as opposed to a liability to be avoided. And I think this is the biggest and maybe most important narrative around the 60-40. It's more about, hey, if I can only offer you two asset classes that more or less will not correlate, maybe once every 50 years they will, on the one hand, versus giving you six, eight, or 10 differentiated asset classes for diversification, which would you rather have? And and I think your analysis is absolutely spot on because over five, six, or seven, what will I have accomplished? I'll lower my drawdown risk. I'll lower my volatility. I'll better risk-adjusted returns over time. And hopefully, because of all that, I'll stay fully invested. But yet you have markets like we had last year, public equity or fixed income, and investors attacking in and out, in and out, and in and out. And what they're doing is tacking their way to leaving a lot of alpha, in some cases, bait on the table. And we're in an interesting point too, Jack, where 
sticking your money in the mattress with inflation. I saw that in the Eurozone, it's come down, maybe still slightly higher in London. But even if inflation's at 4%, sticking your money in a mattress, that has more risk as opposed to investing in the market in the first place. So I think that I want to put a bold underscore about that better risk-adjusted return, because I think that's a very important piece of the narrative that people don't get because they have a tendency to look at these asset classes in isolation. Yeah, and I think it's imperative that people understand how they achieve better risk-adjusted returns. And part of that educational process is something that you guys do very well at at Kyabell and something we try to do at AIMA, particularly as we speak to people outside our industry, either through the media or, or some of the research and publications that we produce. I think it's critical that people understand that because I think we're at a interesting inflection point. I mean, sophisticated investors right across the institutional piece, pension funds particularly, sovereign wealth funds, endowments kind of led this one um, with the Yale model, family offices. They have really understood the advantages of alternatives. And that's why you see the sort of weightings now, you may know the numbers better than I do, but let's call them 25 to 30% of portfolios are in alternatives at at, at some of the more sophisticated institutions. And in many cases, it can sometimes be higher. But then you look at the general just wealth that's held around the world. And you know, let's not forget that of the 300 or so trillion of, of assets under management around the world, half of that is institutional and half of that is private individual, whether it be ultra high net worth individual or the merely wealthy. And you've got that half of it, which is really so underweight and so underexposed to, to the opportunities and alternatives. It's probably only something like 5 or 6%. It may be maybe a fraction higher, but it's really very, very low. If we're thinking about trying to secure the best risk-adjusted returns, not just for the institutions and pension funds case their retirees, but for actually individuals who are taking investment decisions themselves, I think there's still a lot of education to be done to show this opportunity and to provide the right structures, make them available for individual investors to be able to access these as well. Yeah, and I think maybe there's uh, an important theme to focus on there too, where if that pie, as you described, if it's uh, 300 trillion, that piece that's owned by the mass affluent uh, single family office, high net worth individual, that's going to continue to grow and dwarf the institutional side because uh, that is business that's been annuitized in the US uh, in terms of corporate pension plans. Certainly the public funds are are alive and well, but I think we're going to probably see a dampening down of the benefits because the local states and cities really can't afford the contractual promises being made. And then we're not minting many new endowment funds. So as we come down a path where everybody has greater access, it brings up the subject of regulation. And and I know that it's probably not the place to get into specifics, but all things being equal, I think most uh, general partners would prefer less. I don't think none is the right answer. And the regulators perhaps think more is the answer. And I think the balance we have to strike, this is maybe a very difficult needle to thread, is that you want to try to teach the investor how to fish to a very large degree. You want to democratize education. But if the goal is to put more and more regulation in place, and you're rinsing out the very value proposition of the product in the first place, then diversification doesn't matter much anymore. But it's a hard thing to do. And maybe some of your general views on if you had a crystal ball and tried to have everybody's interest in mind, is there a perfect solution? And the answer might be no, but uh, for common sense regulation to protect investors of all stripes. 
you're not going to find me ever disagreeing that regulation is is not a good thing. We need to protect all participants in the markets and their clients. And that does involve certain levels of transparency, but it really insists on market fairness, market integrity. And we've had regulations really like that for very many years. There's two sides to the regulation that worry me most at the moment. One, at the macro prudential level, there is a lot of focus on where the next banking crisis comes from, but that it's not in the banks, it's in the, the asset management industry somewhere. Parts of the asset management industry are described as non-bank financial intermediaries. And there is currently a push being led by global bodies such as the um, Financial Stability Board for more disclosures from asset managers so that regulatory authorities and central banks can assess where some of the risk to financial stability overall might lie. And I understand that as macroprudential regulators, they should have visibility of where the next vulnerabilities are. But as part of that, there is a risk that it becomes overly prescriptive, particularly in setting leverage limits on activities in the alternatives market. Now, leverage can be used for many reasons, and there are many different measures of leverage. And and we get concerned that the measures might be put in place to unduly limit leverage to the extent that really reduces returns and reduces the opportunity open to investors. So I think that's a big one at that level. At the individual manager level, what they're all facing is an increasingly expensive burden of having to comply with regulation, yet more disclosures, yet more reporting. And we're seeing this acutely coming out of the SEC at the moment. And there's a number of things which um, are certainly we're focusing on very heavily and got big question marks over. But the last thing we want to see is to have an industry so tied down that really the net result is that the investor suffers and the investor has less choice. And therefore, portfolios as a whole are impacted by that. And I don't think that is a good outcome. And you call it like treading the needle. Yeah, it's a difficult path to follow. Clearly, regulators need the information and, and we recognize that. But let's make sure it's done in a careful and thought out way. So, Jack, putting a real-life example on this, I spoke at a conference just last week. There might have been a Chatham House rule in place, but I can certainly say what I said there because this is me for attribution. And it has to do with uh, regulation. I think it's going to come out this week with the SEC and ESG regulation. And they brought forward a working stalking horse document maybe a year and a half ago. And a couple interesting things. One is I think in the US, we have a very different view toward ESG. And I reminded this every time I go to Europe and talk to people in the EU. But this regulation is about more common sense disclosure aligned to IFRS and disclosing maybe in a more uniform way, scope one, two, and three emissions, et cetera, et cetera. And a couple of things. One is there were 15,000 comment letters written to the SEC. I think Amo was one of them. I think uh, I did read yours, very common sense approach, which I a little bit like, hey, US, uh, get with the program. It is a challenge globally to try to address some of these views, particularly when it comes to an area like, uh, like ESG. So I think we've got to see greater global cooperation, because if we get things done right or differently in the UK versus the US versus parts of Asia, particularly around ESG, I made the point that we're living under a common ozone layer. And if the EU gets it 100% right, 
but the U.S. is indifferent. And, and I, even on those comment letters, I made this point that of the 50 states in the U.S., there was one common letter written by the state's attorney general from 24 of those 50 states basically saying, no way should this go through in the first place. And nothing versus what they wrote is a very wide bid and ask, but there's a lot we need to do there. And maybe just to close this out, pointing to IOSCO as an example. I know that AMA does some work with IOSCO. We do as well. And and I'd like to think that they have a way of getting sort of global cooperation and uniformity around standards, but that's a hard mandate as well. But I think that the remit makes great sense to me. I don't know how much work you do with them or not, but curious to maybe just close it out with that. Yeah, no, we work very closely with IOSCA, and I think they have a tough job of pulling all the various international regulators into line on that sort of stuff. And again, we've got no enforcement to be able to achieve that. And it is a risk that we end up in a world of fragmented sets of rules, which make it more complex for asset managers to follow, and it just makes it more time-consuming. But I was reading an article in a paper this morning that was the head of ESG at one of the large UK asset managers, traditional long-early asset managers, was, was describing the fact that she felt burnt out, fed up, fatigued at just the difference and different levels of regulation that she was going to be asked to follow in ESG. So it is problematic. Disclosure is important. It's only as good as the data you can get. And I think I really do welcome what the ISSB is, is doing, trying to create a global standard for what corporate issuers have to deliver as, as, as information about their companies so that asset managers can report accurately. Yep, I agree. So, Jack, in the remaining minutes, maybe a bit of a victory lap and a thank you for the partnership. And as I said, it sustains and continues beyond just a board seat. And that goes without saying. But, uh, but and I think I've mentioned this at the top of this discussion. You've been in your seat and I in mine for just about a decade. And maybe as you reflect back on that, is there something that really surprised you? Or if you knew that X was going to happen in 2023 or early 2024 and you knew that coming in, would you have done anything different? So maybe uh, you could take that in whatever direction you want. But I think we go into these jobs with a certain thought process in mind. But then what I love about these markets is it deals us a new hand every single day. And we have to react to that in real time. It's hard to think back 10 years what I was facing then to think what I might have done differently. I mean, the industry's evolved and matured. There's absolutely no doubt about that whatsoever. Organizations like Kaya and like AMA, we are member organizations. And so all that I and you focus on is the quality of our product, the quality of our service and the satisfaction that our members get from us. I'll be quite honest. Maybe I'm not being modest enough, but I'm very pleased with the progress that I have made. I'm not, I'm not sure there are a lot of things I would do differently, and maybe I'm just being blind to my own faults. But when I look at Kaya, and I've been very privileged, and it's been a great honor, Bill, to serve on the Kaya board, there's nothing that I could actually point to you as a board director and say, these are the things you should have done differently, Bill, because I think you've made the most enormous difference to Kaya in the 10 years that I've been on the board. And it's in a great place, thanks to you. What you and I go on to from here, who knows? Only time will tell. And maybe to stay on that last theme, and thank you for the feedback, you had the ability to fire me if you didn't like what you saw. So I appreciate that statement of confidence. But it's, uh, Jack, you and I are about the same age. We've served in this role for 10 years. There's an expiration date for everything. And if somebody said to me, Bill, are you going to be a Kaya tomorrow or next week? I would say absolutely. But if somebody said, are you going to be there for another 10 years? Unlikely. So, and maybe the same is true for you. Maybe you have a different plan. I don't know. But is there sort of a next act for Jack Ingalls? You talked about the early part of your career, the decade to continue an AMA, but 
Is there something unfinished in the work of Jack that uh, you would like to see as the next chapter? Listen, I think you and I still got, despite our ages, Bill, we've still got a lot to offer and we've still got a lot of energy and enthusiasm and we're involved in an industry that we both love. To suddenly sort of come to a cliff ending to that is something that neither you nor I could actually even contemplate at this stage. I mean, I think I've got a few more years left in Aimer and so long as I'm making a difference or I think I'm making a difference and my board tell me I'm making a difference and I'm enjoying it and putting something into it and getting something out of it, then I've got no immediate plans to uh, to stop within the next sort of 12 to 18 months or anything. But yeah, you're right. It will come to an end. And like many people at, at a certain age with a certain range of experiences, you might have to think about other ways you can give something back, either in the charitable sector or through some sort of plural portfolio of where you might be able to offer some uh, either consulting help, help on boards, whether they be not-for-profit, whether they be advisory boards for smaller firms within our industry. That remains to be seen. But again, that's a question of if somebody would have me. Well, and, and I think maybe an important point to underscore there too, Jack, it's a privilege to work in this industry. People in our industry have the ability to impact the capital markets, impact the livelihood and retirement of so many individuals. And and if we do it right over long periods of time, we're paid reasonably well for that. And that comes with responsibility. And giving back is something we all should be thinking about. And this has been an important part of what has defined you in the last decade. I've known you and, and particularly with the work you're doing with Help for Children. I think we've all got to find our causes, but maybe you talked about that maybe as the next step, but it's part of uh, the fabric of what you're doing today. And maybe this would be a good place to sort of bring this whole discussion to a culmination about the importance of what we do when we're not in our day job and maybe talk a little bit about the work you're doing for Help for Children and, and why we as professionals must make this part of our DNA. Yeah, you're right. We've all been very lucky to be involved in this industry over a very long period of time. And much to be grateful for that. And I think it's key to point out that our industry has some great examples of philanthropy right there from coming from the individual level, particularly some of those founders of firms who've been enormously successful. They are giving back. And I think it's very important that people more broadly are aware of that. Sometimes these go unreported and, and the donors and the philanthropists actually want it to go unreported. But nevertheless, at a, at a level that I'm involved in, out of our industry, was created a charity, which originally was called Hedge Funds Care. And then the three initials HFC were were altered to be helpful children, to be more specific exactly what it was trying to do, to help prevent and treat victims of child abuse. And, and the great thing about it, it's a, it's a global charity within our industry. I run the UK arm of that. And to be given the opportunity to chair a board of of great individuals within our industry, all definitely very committed to working on this cause uh, and bringing people together and raise funds um, that we can donate to the grantee charities uh, to go out and really make many children's lives that much more bearable. So that's a very humbling thing to be a part of. I wouldn't have been able to do that unless I'd been in, in this industry uh, uh, in the first place. So I find that very humbling and very satisfying. Uh, thank you for that and all that you do. And uh, the fact that uh, you've been a, a very good friend and a board member for the 10 years I've been at Kaya, I think you have put yourself out of this business to a large degree for the right reasons and that you were a founding member of our audit committee. You helped put a committee structure in place, term limits to repot the thinking and direction around Kaya every six years. Every director now serves two, three-year terms 
putting term limits in for committee chairs and board chairs. This has left us to be a much healthier organization and recognizing that this means the end to the AMA seat doesn't mean an end to the cross-pollination cooperation and alignment of missions between the two of us. And that gives me great pride, great honor, and great hope for the investors that we serve around the world. So Jack, thanks for all of that. Thank you, Bill. Thank you for listening to Educational Alpha. I'm your host, Bill Kelly. Learn more about the Kaya Association and subscribe to the show at kaya.org. That's C-A-I-A.org. See you next time.